if you can get something off the ground, a project that you're passionate about, even if it's something small, it snowballs because good work attracts more people that are passionate about the things that mm-hmm. you're passionate about. And that's how cultures change. And that's how coalitions right. form. If we had been prioritizing human life in our road design, we'd have a totally different reality and we'd be killing less people and we'd have more joyous routes to work and between spaces. It's my goal tonight to uh, sign up a candidate for the neighborhood council. So, Lena, <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> I'm your civic <laughs> en- engagement concierge here to curate your uh, neighborhood council experience. Yes, I want to play. We are on with Stephen Box and Scott Epstein. So, Nick. I just wanted to say thanks for your uh, faithfulness. I think it's been quite some time that you've been keeping Bike Talk going, mm-hmm. and so we appreciate that. So tonight, um, I wanted to uh, chat about, first of all, neighborhood councils. But uh, to get specific, neighborhood council elections are coming up uh, citywide. There's 1,800 board seats, and I would love to see cyclists, uh, pedestrian advocates, artists, new urbanists, public health advocates. I'd love to see folks that um, listen to Bike Talk run for a seat in their local neighborhood council. And so tonight um, we're going to have some conversations with a few folks. Uh, Scott Epstein is here in the studio with us, and he's the um, president of the Mid-City West Neighborhood Council. I also have um, a conversation with Luke Clip, who was uh, with the Los Feliz Neighborhood Council for four years. And then uh, Lena Lightman is um, going to chat with us tonight also. And uh, she's an artist who um, executed a, a grant uh, to do some work engaging the community around the Vision Zero uh, campaign in the city of L.A. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of opportunities for lots of folks to do lots of different things. And we all put our superpowers together. I think we really lift the city up uh, in a meaningful way. And so... Um, you know, we'll have a chance to chat about those things. So Scott rode his bicycle all the way. Riding home is going to be easy, eh? Uh, it's going to be a good ride. I, so I, I, um, I work on the north side of UCLA, so uh, I did a multimodal trip to get here. So I took the Sunset bus, the two bus, uh, got off at Gardner, rode my bike up to Hollywood and Highland, took the subway over the hill to Studio City, mm-hmm. uh, to our nice studio here at KPFK. Um, and on my way back, I'll, I'll hop on the subway again and then ride home to the Fairfax District from Hollywood and Highland. Excellent. Great. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So um, I think we've got uh, Lena queued up, eh? Yeah, here she is. Hey. Hey, Lena, you're here uh, with uh, Nick, of course, and Stephen and Scott, and uh, thanks for jumping in with us. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about bikes in L.A. So, Lena, um, you're not from L.A., is that right? I'm not, but I'm a, Calif- I'm a diehard Californian. Okay. I'm wearing my California shirt and everything. <laughs> there you go. Um, so you operate in some interesting spaces. Uh, I, I understand that uh, you're, you're uh, teaching up at Otis. I am. Yeah, I'm working with the creative action department there. 
And actually, my background is in the arts. My my kind of formal career has been in museums for the first 10 years or so. I was between SFMOMA and I um, helped open the Broad Art Museum at MSU. Um, but through for my entire adulthood, I've been a really committed bike commuter. Um, and I don't use a car. So that's what brings me to you guys. Well, there's that common ground already. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. uh, recently there's, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, when I look backwards um, at L- Los Angeles, I can, sometimes when you stand there in the moment, it doesn't feel like things are changing. But when I look backwards, I, I see that the LADOT has changed dramatically. They just had an artist in residence at the LADOT, and they also, um, you know, embraced the Vision Zero campaign in a significant fashion. Can you tell us about uh, your participation with um, the intersection of art and uh, the Department of Transportation and Vision Zero? Absolutely. So Alan Nakagawa is um, a fabulous artist and transit activist in Los Angeles, and he was the first creative catalyst employed by LADOT for the last two years. Um, And as part of LADOT's Vision Zero program, they doled out a few artist grants along the High Impact Network, which which is basically the areas in the city where the most people are getting, unfortunately, hit and killed by cars. Um, so I did a week-long activa- activation in Panorama City um, along Roscoe Boulevard, which is one of these really deadly areas that's, that's one of these, it's one of these valley corridors that's super wide, lots of lanes built so that cars can feel like they can just go racing down without hitting any stoplights. And those high speeds are, are the deadliest factor, um, as the Vision Zero data has told us. And a lot of people are getting hit by cars, cars and killed uh, on that corridor. So we did a week-long activation about a year ago um, that was designed to bring neighbors out, residents connect to each other, have some healing because this is very, very, very traumatic to have this amount of road violence in your neighborhood. Have people that you know and love getting hit and killed, being witnesses. Um, so that's the sort of work that our our intersection of arts and transit and activism was working with. And uh, yeah, and Vision Zero has has plenty of plenty of of uh, critiques that we can make around that, but I think that this program where they were actually giving money to artists to help bridge sort of community and um, and trauma and policy and infrastructure, they're having the right conversations with this program. That's great. So for those that don't know what Vision Zero is, it's a campaign. It's an it's a um, international campaign. I think it started in Switzerland, Sweden, Sweden, right. I, Sweden, I believe. Yeah, yeah. and um, the Nordic people. The Nordic leading us in so many ways. Yeah, and there's a lot of pushback on Vision Zero because you know I have folks that tell me straight up, mm-hmm. "Well, how about a one percent reduction?" And then the response is, "Well, how about zero deaths?" Well, that's just implausible, impossible. You know, it just can't happen. And the point is that um, it's a lofty goal. It's a, it's a great goal. And, and we've had different versions of, you know, setting a really specific goal. Like, why do we accept and tolerate such collateral damage? Like, how many, how many is enough? 
you know, and the answer is zero. There should be none. But um, so you mentioned uh, engaging the community and encouraging the community, and it started to sound like you were going to start telling me about the the infamous three E's or the four E's or the five E's of um, transportation planning and, and project approvals. You know, that there's an engineering element, but there have to be these other elements, hence the E's. And were you going there or do you I have would, another would, preference? Yeah, no, I would love to tell you about that. I mean, so here's, um, on one hand, as a really, really committed transit activist, I, I love the lofty goals of Vision Zero, right? And um, and the critiques are heavy. But the so the ease you're talking about are education. These are kind of the like pillars of Vision Zero: education, evaluation, engineering, and enforcement. So we're talking about education. So that means getting drivers to understand the rules and the ways to um, reduce injury and death, uh, evaluation, that means using lots of data collection and metrics, engineering, and this is actually, should be at the top. That's the most, that is the number one thing, okay? What we're dealing with, with all of these deadly roads, is bad design. Mm-hmm. And the number one way to reduce the death dramatically that we're seeing is to change the design through engineering. To, um, and that is a very, very, very expensive problem. So that's number one. Really, at the top of the whole list, we can just put money. Um, we need to undo what's been done. We need to change roads um, and deprioritize cars, honestly, on our roads to change to change the rates of fatalities. Enforcement is, is the last of the E's. Certainly, probably the, the biggest lightning rod of the E's is enforcement. That means um, blaming drivers, basically. And, of course, in this current climate of um, where we're dealing with lots of uh, documentation issues, lots of racial profiling, when we talk about enforcement and getting police involved, now we've got a whole new ball of wax that's really fraught and can be really unjust, honestly. So I wanted to, to point out to you guys that a really cool organization in L.A. called People for Mobility Justice yeah. has just released their 5Ds, which is kind of in response to the 4Es. People for Mo- Mobility Justice is an organization um, that focuses on folks of color and people who have non-binary gender identifications and are really focused on social, uh, economic, environmental justice as it pertains to transit. And they've said, okay, we're going to take your four E's and we're going to debunk that a little bit. Um, and the five D's they put forth are decolonize, decongest, decriminalize, dignify, um, and determination. So the idea there is about um, really centering and prioritizing these issues of folks of color in Los Angeles to take precedence over the, the, uh, the experiences of white people that really is what was at the center of the design of Vision Zero. 
Excellent. You know, uh, earlier I was telling you, I, when, I was interested in the, the five Ds. I hadn't heard of them, and I like them. What's interesting about the, um, and uh, there's different versions. Some projects require the three Es, some ask for four, and some ask for five. And whether you continue with the Es or change them to the Ds, the point is you're having a conversation with folks on their platform, you know, because the folks that fund uh, projects understand this sort of checklist of does this project hit all of the things on this checklist. And the, the um, you know, so when you're proposing a safe routes to school project or a bikeways facility or um, some sort of um, innovation in the community, it has to hit sort of some criteria. We played with it for a while with the ease and we added... Um, elicit to the front, that at, at the very Ooh. beginning, we should be eliciting uh, information, feedback, ideas from the community, so there's ownership. We should be engaging the public in the process, and um, there should be equity. It should be mm-hmm. enjoyable, and mm-hmm. it should have a fundamental commitment to the environment. And I know that when you do that in a... Um, uh, a meeting sometimes, like right out of the gate, there's pushback from folks that have been building highways, bridges, roads, you know, for an entire generation, a very specific way. The curb cut goes here, you know, the, the gutter goes here, the drainage goes here. This is just how we do it. So in, in a way, we're really challenging the status quo, but I think it's an interesting way to have a conversation in a, in a, in a format they understand. So the five Ds are really a way to look at the projects and say these are the things this uh these this is the criteria as we move forward for evaluating projects then you can line projects up side by side and see if we're hitting it so scott do you have a project that you've been working on in mid-city west i do um so uh we did something which i think is unique among neighborhood councils uh back i'm the, i've been the chair of mid-city west for four years but prior to that i was the chair of our transportation committee and and my project of love is uh, I with my colleagues conceived a bicycle friendly street project, uh, two neighborhood streets, one east west, one north south through our community, um, and we created a, a, a vision for what that would look like, um, which ended up attracting the attention of city planners and uh, through a lot of work uh, attracted two point three million dollars from from Metro, so that. Uh, project is finally getting its funding this year, so we're starting to plan it. Um, but it's still challenging. I mean, you talked about uh, uh, the engineering profession having a set of ways of doing things, and despite Salita Reynolds being the general manager of LADOT, and despite uh, her putting together a very pretty strategic plan and adopting Vision Zero, uh, it is very is still very challenging to uh, produce innovative, people-centered design in the city, even in a project <laughs> that is explicitly uh, designed to help pedestrians and cyclists get around safely uh, through their community. So. Um, it's a lot of work to try to, get, to try to make sure that this project is a class A project, is doing things that the city has never seen before, and not just a run-of-the-mill uh, project with some sharrows and, and not much else. I mean, we have some good money, um, but you know, even you know, even our engineer who is in in the bikeways unit, you know, he has some learning to do, and 
and and there's still a lot of culture change that has to happen at LADOT. So, Lena, that yeah, I think you both mentioned um, another E that I didn't uh, that I didn't point out earlier, and that is um, just the economics of what we're talking about. And it's not just finding the money, like in your case, Scott. You know, the, the metro was the source of this money, yeah. but sometimes it's also collecting data on what it costs to not do something. Like, what is mm-hmm. the cost? of not improving the quality of our streets um, or the quality of our neighborhoods? What's the cost of ignoring things as they are and, and not pursuing uh, innovation in, in um, land use? And so that's the conversation there. Um, but you know what I have to tell you? The, the lesson I learned over and over again in my mm-hmm. community advocacy is the biggest obstacle is not the funding. Mm-hmm. You create the vision. I think resources are out there. The biggest obstacle is political will, mm-hmm. not funding. So, Lena, uh, when he talks about political will, what was your experience in Panorama City engaging folks and using uh, the um, community to impact, um, you know, political the the political will, if you will, of the policymakers the that had that particular area? Well, it's complicated. I think. Um what you're saying about <laughs> about the cost is really interesting because we can measure cost with a lot of different kinds of metrics, right? We can we can assign dollar value, which yes, there is a, quite a large dollar value that we can assign to um, injuries and fatalities that are happening in these corridors. Kaiser Permanente was on my corridor in Panama, Panorama City in their emergency room. And uh, they were supporters of our program in part because we could promise them, hey, look, this this Vision Zero project we're bringing to your neighborhood is going to result in, it wound up resulting in almost $9 million in safety improvements on that corridor. Does that mean uh, fatalities and injuries, catastrophic injuries diverted from their emergency room? It does. Um, you know, for the city of LA, they, they dole out millions of dollars a year in lawsuits due mm-hmm. to, uh, road surface issues, um, that injure people. Um, but as I was saying, you know, infrastructure is monumentally expensive, incredibly expensive. So really re redoing these things, like adding more streetlights, changing where lanes are, conducting the studies that are necessary to figure out what kind of improvements we need, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, So, and yeah, in terms of political will, again, really complicated. A lot of times, uh, culturally, folks in L.A. really value getting where they want to go in their cars fast. Mm-hmm. And it can be very short-sighted decision-making. Um, and and I empathize to a certain extent. I mean, although I don't use my car, I get that people are, are they look, they need to be at work on time. And gridlock is a very anxiety-producing experience in L.A. So, you know, we can look at, at costs in terms of quality of life. That's part of the reason I ride my bike because it increases my quality of life. I'm not stuck in that gridlock that that some folks in this city are stuck in at 8 a.m. every day that increases agitation. So I guess I'm going to complicate for you 
the, that the economic e and and the cost and benefits analysis. Um, but ultimately, I think that what we should be doing is pri- prioritizing human life, mm-hmm. and that whatever that means economically, um, in terms of uh, economically, in terms of cash money and city dollars. That's where we need to put our will, even if it means politicians not always um, getting, you know, the, the, the cheerleading and the pom-poms shaken in their direction by their constituents. Sometimes change takes a second, and I think we need that leap of faith by our leaders. You know, Scott makes a good point about economics. There's money. It's going somewhere, and it's up to us to help those that are responsible for qualifying us for that money, to qualify for that money, and often... You know, we're all human. Uh, people like to do their job, uh, go home, enjoy their life. And so often f- we'll take the shortest route to the to the finish line. And if sometimes if community members can get behind a project that's specific to their neighborhood and then move it forward, it's more likely to get funded because you've given the people responsible for funding an easy opportunity to fund something good. Yeah, I mean, you know, engineers and folks at LADOT, they're so exhausted by community opposition to projects. You, you, are you, if you're able to conceive something and do the community engagement before it gets to, you know, yourself, I mean, it's a gift to them, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I was actually really surprised at how fast our project got funded. I never dreamed that would happen. Now, it takes a long time after that. You know, the f- project was funded in 2015, and we're <laughs> only yeah. na- only now starting to to implement it. But that's just a nature of the grant cycle. But but from the conception of the project to the funding was only about two two and a half years, which amazed me. Mm-hmm. I never dreamed that that would happen. But David Summers at City Planning right. got wind of it and saw what we were doing around community engagements and saw that it was a good fit for the call for projects. And all of a sudden, we were in business. So, you know. You know, uh, Lena, you mentioned that there's more to the economic, um, to the cost of something than just the, the, the dollars. And there was a project and that's brewing along one of these corridors where there's a lot of incidents. And it consisted of actually getting the faces of people who have been hit on that street mm-hmm. and personalizing this experience because it's someone's mother or father brother or sister, son or daughter, it's someone's neighbor, it's a member of the community. It's not a statistic. It's a human being who was here and wanted to go home to spend the evening with their loved ones and didn't make it because we have accepted the status quo as it is without owning the fact that um, there's an unacceptable cost to the status quo. And um, something else you mentioned also, you know, in conversations, I think it's important to own language. You know, little things that we can do as activists is simply to insist that we start shaping language, like are these accidents Mm -hmm. or are these collisions? Are these statistics or are they humans? Like say the name. Like what, what, what is the language that we're using? And is traffic the movement of vehicles or is it the movement of people? And so um, are we closing streets or are we opening streets when you restrict a motor vehicle from a street? 
you know, is that a closed street or is that an, oh, no, actually, if, if you look at all the, the kids that can now play in the street, it looks like it's pretty open. You know, and so the, this is the language. This is where I think that in any conversation, the, the faster you can start owning language, you can start shaping the conversation. And, uh, and I know that's been a big part. That's, that's one of the simplest things we can do as activists is, is to start using language that really is honest about what's going on. In human, oh, in that's one of the things that I think that Vision Zero gets right is that is the semantics of the thing. Um, I have personally removed accident from my lexicon, and it's crash or it's road violence, um, it's collision. Um, it's never an accident because design is intentional and conscientious. And there's a lot of nefarious design, unfortunately, in Los Angeles. I mean, we're a city of segregation by design, unfortunately. Um, and along, and you know, these these high impact networks that we're talking about run along lines of um, it, it coincides with the segregation issue. So, meaning mm-hmm. where we're dealing with high rates of death and fatality and uh, catastrophic injury. We're also dealing with that's where the neighborhoods ha- are that are people of color, where there are food deserts, where there are um, it, where there's environmental pollution. So design matters and segregation matters, and it's all very intentional. And I think that word choice in this vein sparks conversation and matters. The other thing that's uh, an opportunity is to look for common ground. And when you do a, statist- a statistical analysis of who has access to a car, now you have a really good uh, opportunity to have a conversation with the department, the emergency management department. What's your plan for the people that don't have access to a vehicle if there's a crisis in the city of L.A.? What's the plan? And when you look at the fact that there are 25% of the, yeah, 25% of the city is not going to hop in a car, and, and drive to the, um, you know, Riverside County if there's a crisis. There, you know, and then the, the um, so elements like that engaging, sometimes we think transportation belongs to the Department of Transportation. It actually belongs to a dozen departments. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it's looking for people that have common ground uh, concerns for our concerns. And it's not always the one with transportation in their name. It's sometimes the, you know, the resiliency uh, department public health you know there's, mm-hmm. there's no transportation in that title but yet it's a public health issue it's a public safety issue when people are walking and and have eyes on the streets and so looking for allies is an interesting way and so I, I think um, so Lena I, I wanted to wrap it up with two two questions uh, the first one is if you could tell us about the pro- you know you, how you use process uh, at Otis uh, to um, sort of come up with creative outcomes and the second thing is, um, speaking of partnerships and uh, looking for allies and common ground, what what would you see your role in a neighborhood council um, in terms of a partnership or uh, participation or a project? That was the three P's, by the way, to go with the five D's and the <laughs> nineteen E's. And um, so uh, those those are, are two questions for you. Those are two perfect wrap up questions. It's actually, I'll start with the latter and then you might have to remember me, remind me of the former. So I would say that one of the um, vital elements that artists bring to this conversation is around empathy, something you ma- mentioned earlier. Um, 
we we have to humanize these stories. When we say, okay, buddy, commuter X, so that we so that you folks can get to work on time, we're dealing with X lives lost. That's, that is nothing until we humanize that and create empathy around that. And that is part of the communication gap that artists really fundamentally can offer and create and facilitate. And it's part of the reason why it's important to have um, artists, activists involved in this conversation. And I think that that is uh, a, a great role. We, we need more artists, activists, bicyclists. Um, also, women and people of color, like simple demographics, these are things we need uh, in our neighborhood councils and just in terms of folks being civically involved, okay? It's, I think it's vital to round out um, what happens in our city in Los Angeles, and I, I can see that pretty clearly from my various roles. In terms of Otis and design and process, uh, I would argue that process is, is the whole thing, right? The journey is the destination to use a really um, appropriate cliche. Um, it's all about getting the community involved, having the outreach be radically embedded in the work itself. So it's not about having an outreach team within a design effort. It's about having the design effort be an outreach strategy. Um, it's about being as democratic as humanly, radically possible, getting as many voices as we can involved in all of these processes. So that means um, also dealing with, with as, we, as I was mentioning earlier, the racism, the segregation, the oppression that exists in our city in many major metropolitan areas. Um, that all should be part of these conversations, these processes for creating design. And clearly, if we had had end users in mind, if we had been using empathic design, if we had been um, prioritizing human life, even in our road design and infrastructure with uh, the ways in which LA um, came to exist and our, and our methods of moving around the city came to exist, we'd have a totally different reality and we'd be killing less people and we'd have more joyous routes to work and between spaces. Excellent. So uh, you'll have to forgive me, but um, it's my goal tonight to uh, sign up a candidate for the neighborhood council. So, Lena, Uh I'm here for you. I'm your civic (laughs) engagement concierge here to curate your uh, neighborhood council experience. So if you'd like to partner with a okay, neighborhood council, uh, you let me know and I will help you find, I know you already have on some of the projects and I know you're a project-based artist. And so um, I assure you there's 99 neighborhood councils out there that are looking for artists to uh, I would love to work with you, Lena. I have a list of projects. <laughs> <laughs> you guys do tactical urbanism type stuff, I assume. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yes. I want to play. We'll, we'll have to, um, as, as I told Stephen earl- earlier in the week when we were talking about this show, I said it's a very menschy act to be on the neighborhood council in L.A., but because um, it's hard work, uh, but I'm not opposed, so maybe we'll have more conversations past tonight. Excellent. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining us, Lena. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
and uh, look yeah, forward to uh, working likewise. with you as we move forward. All right. Nice have to a meet great you, night. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye now. Thanks. So, Scott. Yes. The man with three hats. Uh, and he's wearing three hats. He is yeah. in the studio. But uh, as a neighborhood council um, president and as an activist, and I don't know that, you know, I mean, I don't know what the qualifications for being an activist is. I think climbing on a bike in a street that, uh, on, on, in a city that um, isn't, I, I think that so many, so many simple acts in and of themselves are the acts of an activist. And yeah. um, the food we eat, uh, the mode of transportation uh, that we select, um, the, where we spend our money, mm-hmm. um, the, the support, you know, the, the things we support with our participation, our simple behavior uh, is, I think, um, in and of itself, the essence of activism. But as an activist or a new urbanist um, or a um, social justice warrior or whatever the <laughs> titles are, but you're also a public policy um, professional, public policy professional, another three, three Ps. And uh, <laughs> I, I mean, am yeah. going to be doing that all night. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so could you speak to um, your experience with how each group needs the other? Uh, sure, sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, going back to the theme of, of political will, um, you know, I, I think, I think our political leaders need activists. Um, you know, politicians are often in the business of getting votes, right? That's the bottom dollar of being a politician. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean... That's how you continue being a politician. Um, and and we are in a transitional state in Los Angeles. We are entering a new version of Los Angeles, a third Los Angeles, and it's a very different Los Angeles uh, than the Los Angeles that people have lived in for decades. Um, so it's really personal for people and and it's it's difficult to challenge the notions of of how we get around, uh, how we live, um, how different uses are stacked together or smushed together in this emerging world city. Um, and uh, I think our elected officials, most of them, need us to help them show the way, uh, to 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 help show them the way. Um, so, uh, you know, at Mid-City West, we are, uh, we're pushing the envelope a little bit. Um, we're embracing multimodal transportation in a region of the city that has almost no bicycle infrastructure. Uh, we are figuring out ways to say yes to more housing, to welcome new neighbors without, um, without losing the existing community members that make our our little part of LA so special. Uh, we're trying to embrace a humane approach to, to homelessness and saying that just like just like Vision Zero, it shouldn't be okay that people are living on our streets. Uh, that it's a policy failure, not a failure of individual human beings. Um, all of these are actually kind of relatively new ideas in Los Angeles and relatively revolutionary ideas. Right. <laughs> So, uh, with regards to your uh, public policy background, um, your na- let, me, let me back up. Your neighborhood council has how many board members? 
We have 35 members. I believe we are the largest board in the city. I think so. And, and what's interesting is there's this emotional argument that more than three people in a room and you're going to end up, you know, in gridlock mm-hmm. with regards to making a decision on what to order for dinner. Mm-hmm. And you've got one of the largest, if not the largest, and you, you somehow seem to be able to reach consensus, mm-hmm. find common ground in a community that's dramatically diverse in terms of it a is. lot of data it, points. It, it is. It's a diverse community economically, culturally. It's at the, it's the geographic pinpoint center of Los Angeles. Um, it's a cultural center. So uh, it's, it's a vibrant area with a, with a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities. Um, and we have, we have found that common ground. Um, I think a big piece of it is respect. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of wonderful board members who respect each other. Uh, I, I, I like to think I set the right tone in that way. I don't agree with everything uh, with my board members on every issue, um, but I respect them. And I give them the chance to speak. Everyone gets a chance. You know, it, it is a democratic process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so simple things like that, I think, you know, are really, are really important because we're not going to agree on everything, and we shouldn't be. That's what neighborhood councils, that's what democracies are for, right? So by the time something comes to your neighborhood council board with 39 or 35 people mm-hmm. in, in attendance to hear this presentation, yeah. is that when the work starts or has the work been done? Well, it's interesting the, the phrase you use, by the time it gets to our board. I mean, part of what we've been trying to change, what I've been trying to change um, culturally in the neighborhood council and Mid-City West particularly is we shouldn't always just be responding to things. We shouldn't always be reactive. So, you know, I mean, I think uh, the neighborhood council system came out of the secession movement. Um, It was uh, uh, an effort by the city to give a little bit more local control. And traditionally, folks were uh, mostly focused on, on land use and the idea of being judges, I want this or I don't want this in my community. Part of what I've tried to do with my leadership is say, well, wait a second, we need to be much more than that. We need to proactively say, okay, um, part of what makes living in a city um, uh, special and uh, part of what makes our community livable is public space. How do we increase and and, and revitalize public space? in our communities. Oh, there's a pocket park right across from our office. It's in terrible repair. Uh, It hasn't been taken care of in years because it's LAUSD property and it used to be under a maintenance agreement with the city of LA, but then that maintenance agreement uh, was dropped during the recession. How do we take ownership of that and say this is something that we care about? Maybe this can be a space that builds community. you know how can so 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 it's been about finding part of the work has been about finding those opportunities to proactively create the vision for how we move forward do you think there's a a benefit to the part for the participants in a neighborhood council um in participating learning how the city works so some folks look at a neighborhood council and go, oh my goodness, look, look at all these layers of regulation mm-hmm. and rules. At the same time, you master that, you now have mastered the city's system yeah. and understand how to navigate the larger uh, 
picture. Uh, it's uh, an incredible, uh, an incredibly important part of what we do, um, and and it's one of the things that that I'm proud of. Um, I've been on the council for six years. Some some that's a long time. <laughs> some people are on for one term and then they leave. But what I see happening over time is I think we're creating a, an engaged citizens, citizenry. And I think, and one of the things that I'm most proud of is I think that some of the people that I've brought into the system, that I've recruited, who I've introduced to each other via the council are going to be working together for decades to build a better Mid-City West and a better LA, even if they're not on the board anymore. Um, and so I do think it's it's really eye-opening in terms of how do you navigate those those processes. And sometimes frustrating for people, but also really empowering um, when you figure out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. Now, your neighborhood council uh, has um, a board structure that guarantees the seven geographic areas are represented, plus it has some specific um, seats set yeah. aside for business, residential, uh, student, I, I don't recall the different positions, but yours is a very structured neighbor council to guarantee that the 35 includes. Yes and no. Uh, s- some are much more structured than we are. I mean, we actually used to be 45 members, mm-hmm. and we used to have even more titled seats, even more, and, and we, we, we consolidated it a bit. Um, but actually, our, our, our board structure is rather open which has been, I think, a good thing for us. Um, we do have the seven z- zone seats, seven sub-geographies of Mid-City West. Each one of them has one representative and can only be uh, elected by the residents in that zone. All of the other seats are open to any Mid-City West stakeholder to run for, even though they're named for nonprofit, renter, mm-hmm. homeowner, at-large, etc. And so uh, it's actually been a really open way of getting, I mean, if you're a Mid-City West stakeholder, which could be I live in Mid-City West, I own property in Mid-City West, I work in Mid-City West, or I otherwise have a strong stake in the neighborhood, you can run for uh, 28 of the 35 seats. And so um, I think that's that's Mm -hmm. been a powerful tool for getting for getting more engagement. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, it's legal. and that I think that that that's very different from some of the other neighborhood mm-hmm. councils. I mean, right next door, Greater ne- Greater Wilshire Neighborhood Council, they have a lot of great members, and mm-hmm. we work with them um, a lot. Um, but it's a very tightly structured right. council, really designed, I believe, to coincide with the HOA borders, mm-hmm. uh, and is still heavily controlled by the homeowners associations. Uh, that make up the greater Hancock Park area, for better or for worse. Um, so uh, it, it, it's, it's an instructive case in how the design of these bylaws and, and these structures can really shape mm-hmm. what's possible. Right. And the, th- uh, the other thing is every neighborhood is different. Yeah. And so we have neighborhoods that are literally uh, 99% residential. Mm-hmm. We have others that are 75% business. Um, the downtown Los Angeles Neighborhood Council, when it was formed, there weren't many people living downtown. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was a nine to five uh, neighborhood council. I mean, yeah. at five o'clock, there was an exodus and there mm-hmm. were a few people left. And so things are changing, too. And uh, Boyle Heights was a large neighborhood council. Their board structures changed dramatically because what they thought was a good idea at the beginning, they came to realize that there were some 
And folks learn from each other. We have some neighbor councils that are 17 at-large seats. Come one, come all. The top 17 mm-hmm. people get seated. Others are, are uh, very specific. And the point there is there's 99 neighborhood councils, uh, the 99th being the uh, newly formed historic cultural um, subdivision. So there'll be two councils there. But um, 99 neighborhood councils, each with its own unique uh, bylaws, yeah. board structure, yeah. and focus or, you know, uh, definition of what their role in the community is. So they're laboratories of democracy. Right. And I mean, and in, in and like in any federal system, there's good things and bad things yeah. about <laughs> that, right? I mean, you know, I think we're right to be proud of that, but the truth of the matter is there are, there are councils that are more restrictive mm-hmm. and therefore met more less democratic than mm-hmm. other councils. And so I think that your job is very tough in a way um, as a leader at Empower LA. How do you push for reform where it's needed and also support the diversity sure. that can be a good thing. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's a tension uh, there of don't tell us what to do, and then when something goes wrong, where were you? Yeah. And and so, uh, which is human, which it's, 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 you know, natural, and uh, it, it is what it is. And um, the, the thing is that the neighbor council system is unique. Uh, you qualify if you live there, you qualify if you work there, you can own a mm-hmm. business or a property, um, and also you can participate in a church, have kids in a school. Mm-hmm. So traditional elections, it's where you sleep. Yeah. But in neighborhood council elections, it's where mm-hmm. you choose to part, you know, to, to uh, it could be where you sleep, it could be where you spend your waking hours. In your case, because um, you're a researcher at, um, public policy researcher at UCLA, mm-hmm. Now that you're coming up on six years at Mid-City West, you might retire and then start another six years over at the uh, <laughs> North Westwood <laughs> because you qualify there because you work there. And I think that's what's interesting is it allows people to, to make a choice. You know, where is where where do I want to invest my time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it because I have a child in this school? I want to make sure that this then is a neighborhood where I have some participation in improving the quality of life for my child, our family, and our neighbors? Or is it here where you own property and have a vested interest in property values? Like it it, it really uniquifies the experience, if you will, Mm -hmm. in terms of um, where you choose to participate. But I did mention where to invest your time. Is there an investment of time? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's a wide variety across board members. Um, for me, it's like a second job, um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, the basic, the basic responsibilities of being on our board involve attending a monthly meeting and the meetings are, you know, typically three to four hours, um, and being on a committee, a subcommittee. And those committees generally, if they're doing their job, they're meeting monthly as well. Now, those are the main the main uh, things that are expected of board members. Of course, people do a lot above that, um, you know, including, you know, playing leadership roles on the council, planning events, um, you know, liaising with agencies, and it just goes on and on and on. Um, so it, it can be, I think, what you make of it. Uh, there is a basic level of, of commitment, though. It's, it's, not, it's not nothing. You know, and I think that the best board members treat that seriously. So if I had some qualms about running for the board, is there uh, another opportunity for me to participate? 
Uh, there is. I mean, you know, at Mid City West, we tr- we are really working hard to try to offer that menu of civic engagement options to meet people where they are. So um, we're increasingly trying to. So so our bylaws are a little restrictive on taking part in committees, unfortunately, but a quarter of the membership of our subcommittees can be made up of people that are not on the board. So that's a great way and a, a great feeder pattern into our board. Um, but also we're trying to offer folks opportunities to volunteer. We do the homeless count every year. We're really proud of that. Um, we do work around urban forestry. We canvas streets um, to get people to commit to watering so that we can plant new trees in the parkways. We do cleanups of this pocket park that we've invested in. So there are opportunities to volunteer. And for people who, you know, don't want to come to a meeting and give public comment. That's a w- another way, by the way, of getting involved. All of our meetings are public, obviously. Uh, and everyone, every member of the public has the right to public comment on any agenda on our, on our, uh, on, on our, on any item on our agenda. Uh, so that's another avenue. But not everybody wants to do that, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that traditional way of getting involved can be combative. Um, because, you know, many of these issues end up being a little bit, uh, of a battle, uh, some people want to get their hands dirty and have a physical imp- uh, effect on 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 the beauty of their neighborhood. So we're trying to offer that too, offer different windows uh, into getting involved. You know, uh, years ago, I um, one of my f- uh, fond memories of uh, Mid City West Neighbor Council elections was mm-hmm. the elections were held at the uh, Grove and the Farmers Market. Okay in the open space uh-huh. and uh what was interesting is so many people um because it was visible it was right there in the center had a little white picket fence around it so there was actually a you know at the a, plaza a, a border yeah uh-huh. and uh by the um old gas pumps there yeah yeah and uh folks would just come up and chat and we live in a city where uh we move so fast yeah that it's our chance to just chat is so limited mm-hmm. because we've got such distance to cover that just seeing something strange in the in the quad area and just walking up and going, what's going on? Yeah. Well, what's a neighborhood council? Yeah. Well, what are you electing? Well, who are these people? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, why do I care? And what's in it for me? And these are all valid questions. They're great questions. Mm-hmm. But we don't get to have them because we don't even get people's attention mm-hmm. uh, in a city that moves so fast. And I think that... Um, in such a big city, you know, neighborhood councils uh, it sometimes offer an opportunity for us to uh, localize yeah. uh, and 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 sort of bring the larger global issues. You mentioned homelessness, huge, global, massive, incredibly, significantly, uh, uh, trouble. Uh, like a, a, a problem with a solution we don't have. How do we bring that down into engaging people yeah. one-on-one in what can we do at a granular level to start the conversation and partner with other agencies? And you mentioned the liaisons, you know, A, just selecting a, a homeless liaison to meet with the next neighborhood council and the next neighborhood council, you know, that's an opportunity for us just to slowly start this connectivity. Yeah. Which may that that could be the process that Lena talks about in terms of manifesting itself. Stick I, to the process; the outcome will deliver itself. We we, we are we are a social species. We thrive, and this is one of the great things about being living in a city, is we are you know, 
as agitating as it can be to be squished together, there's also great benefits to that. And so I couldn't agree more um, in terms of the value of neighborhood council is in, in, in building those relationships. Um, I have seen the fruits of it in many, many ways. People working together because people hiring each other for formal work, you know, uh, because they met through the neighborhood council. People, you know, we formed, I, I formed uh, the Midtown Los Angeles Homeless Co Coalition with some neighborhood council people and some homeless advocates in our area. Um, and I was, um, I've just having monthly meetings, showing up, having accountability, developing the relationships with the different agencies, peace officers, homeless service agencies, just that meeting structure had an incredibly powerful impact. We, we, we were in a, mid, Midtown is, although we have, we calculated we have about, I think it was about two to four percent of the homeless population countywide, not trivial. But we basically had zero services mm -hmm. in our very large region of the city. Hancock Park, you know, the whole Wilshire Corridor, mm -hmm. west of Koreatown. Um, and, but creating that accountability um, changed things. And actually now that coalition is becoming a 501c3 nonprofit. Wow. So, you know, things happen when you bring people together. Excellent. So um, speaking of bringing people together, um, let's see if we can uh, check in with Luke. I chatted with him uh, earlier this afternoon, so um, let me see if I can. Uh, here we go. Uh, this is Stephen Box. I'm here with Luke Clip in Los Feliz. And uh, did I say it correctly, Luke? Yes, Luke, Los Feliz. Um, and uh, Luke was recommended to me by uh, several folks. Our paths have sort of crossed uh, in a few different arenas, if you will. But um, he was recommended because he's a neighbor council veteran. He's uh, also um, a new urbanist or active lifestyle uh, activist. And uh, he's also a policymaker. And so we're here with Luke to talk about uh, those three spaces. So. Could you tell us more about your experience as an activist, a neighborhood council veteran, and a policymaker? Sure. And honestly, I really just want to say thank you, firstly, for having this opportunity and for reaching out to me. I'm just really honored to be able to be able to do this and then hopefully share some information with people that will be helpful to them. Um, yeah, so I, my day job right now, I work for Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia. I staff him on the LA Metro Board of Directors, which um, for people who are familiar, LA Metro runs the transit system, but it's also building a lot of big construction projects right now, and it's also a funder for transportation projects throughout the county for that distributes money to uh, the 88 cities and county of Los Angeles. So it's uh, it's a pretty big organization with a lot of major questions that get grappled or tackled by the board, and so I staff the mayor on that so that I have to go through the reports every month, figure out where there are issues that might be coming up, talk with staff, help the mayor understand what, you know, what things fit or don't fit with his own perspective and, and address any areas that he might like to take a little bit different direction um, when they come to the board. So that's my day job. Before that, I worked for Metro in the budget office for several years where I actually got to see um, sort of where the rubber meets the road, if you will. 
Uh, I, I am of the belief that you can pass a million policies, but they're meaningless unless you have money to actually enforce them or make them happen. And you see that in the budget. If you want to understand what an organization's priorities are, look at the budget. Look where the money's going. Um, so I've, I've, that's my background. I've, I've worked in budget work in municipal government for years prior to that, but um, you know, most recently that's what I've been doing with Metro. I, uh, yes, I was a, on the Los Feliz Neighborhood Council for four years. Uh, elected as a District E representative here in South, Southern Los Feliz, and uh, two of those years served as the treasurer. I was elected by the board to be the treasurer, and then two of those years as the president. So I got to um, really be intimately familiar with all the goings on in the neighborhood council. Uh, people would ask, you know, what's your vision for the neighborhood council when I was president? My vision was just to keep it going, <laughs> because as an all-volunteer organization, I think there's an assumption that people make when they're on the outside that neighborhood councils are these well-functioning uh, wheels of democracy, but it's nothing like that at all. And so it's, it's really, you know, what people put into it is what it's able to accomplish with an all-volunteer organization. And, um, while you know we had staff support from the city, it really it comes down to what you can do with your you know 19 board members and several dozen other volunteers who sort of chip in where they can. Um, that was quite an experience. I'm really glad I did it, uh, and I'm really glad there are other people who are picking up the mantle and running with it now. Um, as an activist, I currently and just actually after I left the Los Feliz Neighborhood Council. I joined the steering committee of Abundant Housing Los Angeles, which is an organization that advocates for a lot more housing to be constructed in LA. Uh, I have been involved in any number of capacities before that. I, I organized an event called Jay Dancing, which was to sort of drive home the point that the city's enforcement of jaywalking laws was inherently uh, discriminatory and needed to change. And since that, little event that we put together. There was a state law that was passed uh, by Assemblymember Santiago, which uh, stopped the city from being able to enforce jaywalking laws from the moment a crosswalk starts blinking the don't walk sign. Um, so it, you know, it's one of those things where I'm very active in pedestrian, bicycling, active transportation spaces, um, and you know, find opportunities to plug in where I can. Uh, right around the time that Measure S, which was a ballot measure in 2017 on the March city, city March ballot, uh, before, when that was first introduced as, uh, as a proposal for the November 2016 ballot, uh, I organized a Facebook group called Greater LA that was intended at the time really to organize grassroots in opposition to that particular measure uh, that since then now really has become a place and a space for conversations around uh, urbanism, how the city can grow uh, in an, a sustainable fashion, uh, how we provide more opportunities for affordable housing, create more opportunities for people to walk and bike and play and ride transit. Um, and, you know, it's been an interesting experience sort of seeing how that's evolved over time and also seeing how the conversations around these issues has evolved. Excellent. So as a um, policymaker, and if we want to see you in action, I suppose we could go to the Metro Board every Thursday and see you down there like the conductor uh, waving your baton and... <laughs> making it happen and uh, the board responding to your um, is that how it works that is not how it works <laughs> but I appreciate you giving me that much power so as a policymaker, what role do activists play is there a place for activists in the mix and what would your advice to activists be uh, my first bit of advice is don't stop 
there's a, I, I, I think that what I've observed when I look at from the outside at policymakers, there's, there tends to be an assumption among activists that, well, this person is with us on these things, and therefore we don't need to push as much. Or we, we, don't need to, we don't need to have this conversation with them that we need to have with these other elected officials. And I would say that's wrong. Uh, what I have experienced is that particularly elected officials who, are, who we see as allies on things that we care about need to hear from us. They need to know that we've got their back. Um, that is something that, you know, I, 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 having, having been involved on both sides of that coin, I understand that from, as an activist, the last thing you want to do is feel like you've got to sort of shore up your flank or that you've got to, you know, say sweet nothings to the people that you should otherwise have as your allies. But the reality is they're getting pummeled. If they're really taking a risk, even if they believe in it, they're getting pummeled and they need to know that it's worth it in the moment, not just afterward when they can say, look at this thing we did but in the moment when they're dealing with the back and forth of legislative sausage making and the, the fights that happen in the trenches, they need to know that there are people who have their back. So I think it's one of the key things that I, I've seen on the policymaker side that I think activists kind of, they tend to sort of assume, well, you've, we, you've got our back, so we don't need to get yours in the same way, but that's really, really important. I would also say, don't assume policymakers know and by, don't assume they K-N-O-W, no. I think we have this assumption that like, oh, well, clearly some of this person, you know, they understand these issues, they should know X, Y, or Z. Just saw, just the other day, I mean, it's one of any myriad examples where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is gonna be the youngest member of the, of the House of Representatives, which gets sworn in in January, made some comment on Twitter about how we have 12 years to solve the climate crisis, according to the IPCC report, and, the response from people on Twitter was this, there was a whole bunch of people who were like, oh, well, you don't understand it's actually only two or three. Well, yeah, that's true, and she may not understand, so hold her hand. Don't hit her over the head. And, and I think as activists, we tend to think, well, don't you know? Shouldn't you know this? Everyone knows this. It's all facts. It's all out there. We should never assume that. Because the reality for elected officials, they've got a million things on their plate, the amount of time and effort they can give to any one of them is incredibly limited. Incredibly limited. I mean, I when I worked as staff at Metro, and you put to, or when I worked at staff as for the Board of Supervisors a few a number of years ago in San Francisco, you would put together a whole ten-page report, and then you'd have a one-page summary. That one-page summary is too long for an elected official. They need to know in ten seconds why is this important, and what do I need to do? How do I address this? And that is painful for activists because we're so deep in the weeds on something. The idea that I should distill the thing that I have devoted my life to in 10 seconds so you can get it is an insult. But the reality is if we don't do that, we don't get the results in the same way that I think we really could if we're, if we're willing and able to just swallow our pride a little bit and fight. Excellent. So, um um, you know, your neighborhood here, uh, so I have so many great memories of this neighborhood. It's actually where I was activated on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, riding back from the Echo Park Film Center late at night after bike summer and uh, had an experience and uh, responded accordingly and have never looked back. But one of the most significant uh, successes we had with the LAPD was when we got some of them on a bike here in Silver Lake and rode up by the dog park and tried to show them 
what exactly uh, the cyclists were experiencing on some of these curvy roads because you get squeezed and there's no, uh, folks can't see um, around the bends and they're going pretty fast, which means we're this constant surprise and then the cyclists came out of nowhere. Well, yes, because you're driving so fast on these uh, curvy roads, but the police had a significantly different um, um, understanding of our words once they'd ridden them with us. And the same thing was true in East Hollywood when we were doing uh, Street Beat and the um, the police wanted to stay in their car and follow us when we were doing the weekly walks. And it wasn't until they got out that they realized how broken the sidewalks were, how overgrown the trees were so the um, street lights weren't working. They're, they're on, but the light wasn't hitting the sidewalk. And why does no one walk this neighborhood? Because it's dark and the sidewalks are broken and people don't feel comfortable, including the police. And so a lot changed sometimes when we just sort of um, went for a walk or went for a ride, you know, and, uh, but to your point though of the um, be brief, you know, we did rehearse the uh, elevator pitches and, um, you know, you're gonna, that's where the work gets done. And it's true for me, you know, at City Hall, um, you know, you can try and schedule meetings and it'll be two, two weeks down the road and then it'll get bumped and then, it, you know, you'll end up uh, competing for someone's energy and attention and time. But, you know, if you just, uh, walk around City Hall, you'll bump into folks, but you've got to be fast and furious right. and get to the point. That's right. And um, so we, we, we do this thing, uh, you got to know what you want, because everyone learns how to complain um, early in life, and we never look back. We, we can tell everybody what's wrong, but what do you want? Tell me what you want, and who's the right person to, to go to, because we often knock on the wrong door, but then get to the ask, like just tell them what you want. Solve the problem. And allow them then to take it and and um, and bring it home. So, what would your uh, advice be for activists that perhaps wanted to get involved with the neighborhood council? Um, my first bit of advice for getting involved in the neighborhood council is exercise a lot of patience, lots and lots of patience, because what you will encounter the moment you walk into a neighborhood council meeting, if you've never been to one before, is this feeling of um, of is this right? Is this what happens? Is this real? Because people will be having arguments about not the issue, but about the rules. Right. Or they'll be, you know, there, there's this, you know, there's all of this sort of like um, pomp and circumstance around how everything sort of has to be laid out. There are real reasons for all of that. But if you're brand new and you're just walking in the door, it all looks like. A big mistake. Like you want people to be having real conversations, genuine conversations about really important, pressing local issues, and you walk in and instead you feel like you've walked into like a meeting of the library board, you know, discussing which books to put on which shelves. It can be very disorienting. So my first bit of advice is really patience. Having walking in and and, and letting patience sort of be your guide. Um, my next bit is don't give up. Uh, it, it is very easy, I think, um, and, and, and frankly, I think part of the reason that neighborhood councils tend to sort of skew uh, toward older, whiter homeowners, wealthier homeowners, is because it, it lends, the, the work lends itself to people who have a vested financial interest in a community and less toward the people who are just wanting to get something done. 
right? So it, it becomes easier if you don't have a day job, if you, um, if you see your property values at stake, uh, if, you, if the job that you have gives you all your evenings free so you can sit in meetings as long as you want, as many days of the week as you want. So the, all of these things can be very discouraging. And what I found in our neighborhood council is when you get people who are willing to get past that and continue to stay involved, you do some pretty awesome things. Um, and there were things that I would never have even envisioned that we did, uh, that we were able to accomplish in, in the time that I was involved, that were things that, frankly, I think probably changed lives. Uh, and for much, much for the better. But maybe it weren't necessarily my vision, but were things I was able to help facilitate as in the role as president. So. So, it, so the first is be patient. The second is, is to, to, uh, to stick with it. And the third is to be willing to let go of every sort of idea that you think has to be and to be able to sort of join in the fray and support the work of others and allow them to support your work too. Those are the three big pieces of advice I would give for someone getting involved in the Excellent. So we're going to take a break and we're going to uh, go back to the studio and chat with Nick for a bit. And then we're going to come back and uh, talk with Nick. So um, thanks very much. So that was Luke uh, clip. I chatted with him earlier this afternoon. And uh, while that uh, clip was while uh, that clip was playing, I chatted Luke clip and the clip. Uh, <laughs> I chatted with Nick, and Nick asked a good question. I, I mean, <laughs> it was a good question. He said, uh, "What the heck's a neighborhood council?" And so I just want to well, take a wait, moment. Did, I don't think I said that. <laughs> no, he said, who the hell are you? Uh, <laughs> I asked no. about Empower LA. So Empower LA. So the city of Los Angeles is the largest city in the most populated state in a pretty significant country. And the neighborhood council system is unique in all of this land in that um, Scott mentioned that during the secession movement in 1999 or 1988 or whatever it was. Uh, you know, Hollywood wanted to break away. The Valley wanted to break away. The Harbor wanted to break away. But the battle cry of the folks that wanted to secede from the city was essentially, where's our stuff? Like, why aren't I involved in the process? Like, who's making these decisions? And there was a lot of uh, disconnect. And out of that disconnect, and by the way, the, the secession movements failed, not because the Valley didn't turn out the votes, but the entire city voted. And so the rest of the city said, no, you can't go. And the Valley said, we want to. And they said, no. And you know, it, it didn't happen. And Hollywood, you know, said, it's Hollywood, you know, we're the center of the universe. And you just heard that Scott thinks that um, he's the center of the universe. And so <laughs> we got a lot of neighborhood council, a lot of neighborhoods that really wanted to be the center of the universe. And so how do we honor that sense of um, uniqueness in, in, a, in a community? And so the neighborhood council system was part of charter reform. The city charter was uh, dramatically um, changed in the process that included um, the Department of Neighborhood Empowerment, it included a commission, and it included um, a budget uh, to provide for the formation of neighborhood councils. And so we've got neighborhood councils that are celebrating their 15th year, and we've got some new neighborhood councils. Westwood is a few weeks old, you know. Um, Northwestwood. Uh, Northwestwood, sorry. And uh, Historic Cultural is, um, you know, in the process of the subdivision, so there's a, a, a new one coming um, momentarily. And um, so... The thing is that this is embedded in the city charter, you know, the constitution of the city. And so this civic engagement commitment um, 
doesn't always, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, public policy and advocates, and sometimes the, you know, the policymakers need us, mm -hmm. but at the same time, n not always want us, you know, and yeah. so there's there's this natural tension in the problem solving or vision pursuing process, but the bottom line is that this is actually uh, a, a neighbor council system that other countries come to visit. We have a map in the uh, conference room up on the 20th floor of City Hall, and we ask the guests to sign their country. But we've had uh, members of parliament from other countries. We've had heads of departments from Russia. We've had people that say, uh, don't take my picture because I don't want the people in the country I come from to know that I'm here. The State Department uh, brings folks to the neighborhood council system and to neighborhood councils. And it's interesting that the groups that come from different countries want to see different things based on what they're dealing with in their country. And sometimes when you're in the midst of it, you take it for granted. Mm -hmm. But when a group from Mongolia comes here and wants to know where this Hyperion Wastewater Treatment Center is and what does a neighborhood council have to do with land use, and, you know, they're, they're, they're asking these questions, things we take for granted. Um, you know, we've got neighborhood councils that are voting on airport issues. We've got neighborhood councils that are voting on wastewater issues. We've got neighborhood councils that are really championing these things because they're near and dear and specific to their neighborhood. But essentially, um, the Department of Neighborhood Empowerment is one of 40 departments in the city of L.A. And that, that there's 99 now neighborhood councils that um, spread out through the city. Of, uh, through the city. And um, each of the neighborhood councils is made up of volunteers. Each of the neighborhood councils gets a budget. The budgets are all the same regardless of uh, how many stakeholders the Mid-City West Neighborhood Council has. So we have got, we've got some small neighborhood councils. We've got some large neighborhood councils. We've got some that are geographically large but population light and reverse. Um, the neighborhood councils, uh, you know, have their own uh, bylaws and their own um, – board structure and they set their own agenda for what they'd like to accomplish in the neighborhood with the participation of the community. And um, you qualify not based on citizenship or, um, you know, it's, it's not like a traditional election where it's, you know, it's very specific. It's live, work, own, and participate. You don't have to be a citizen. Um, or a resident. Or a resident. And, and so uh, students at UCLA, just uh, a, a new neighbor council was just formed because they wanted to be more sensitive to the fact that there's a 50, 40 to 50 person, 40 to 50,000 student population. And I think it's, I don't know what the staff of UCLA is, but it's. Well, it's so I think it's huge. UCLA is one of the top three or four employers right. in, in the county. So, yeah, it's big. Yeah, and so UCLA is um, bigger than the majority of the cities in L.A. County, you know, UCLA alone. Mm -hmm. And we've got several universities in the city of L.A. And so in the spirit of representation and an opportunity uh, for folks to, to have a, a – you know have people hear their voice, neighbor councils are, are um, that opportunity. There's 1,800 – board seats, those 99 neighborhood councils, and uh, the neighborhood council elections are coming up in um, the first six months of 2019, which means that candidate filing is going to be soon. My phone number, and get your pencil ready here, Nick, my phone number is 323-864-7586. Uh, and I promise I will, you can text me or, or call me, I will absolutely be your concierge for the civic engagement journey. You and everyone out there 
in um, L.A. land. And so, Nick, you know, uh, here we are in um, at KPFK. Nick, you'd qualify for the neighbor council that represents this area. In addition, uh, you're a teacher, yeah? Mm-hmm. You would qualify in that neighborhood uh, for the neighbor okay. council. And then, of course, in your neighborhood where you live. And um, so you see you, Nick, and no pressure, Nick, but I brought a contract, <laughs> Nick, and I've already filled it out with your name, yeah. Nick. <laughs> but I'd love to see you on a neighborhood council. And, and the, the, the thing I would love is a lot of the issues that are emotional and um, lacking in human perspective, it's because we don't know the people involved. And if I think if we had a, a cyclist, a pedestrian advocate, a new urbanist on every neighborhood council, we could turn, take these issues from being abstract and, and then turn them into um, people-based, experiential opportunities for empathy and to see things through others' uh, eyes, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to try and understand the context of your experience. You know, uh, absolutely. Scott just mentioned that uh, he has a young child and Nick has uh, mm-hmm. a super duper young child, fourteen weeks. Yeah, and I have congratulations. And and I have two young boys. And I'm telling you that you know sometimes um, I can't. Um, I I just it was. It's amazing to me when I look back how much my world changed when I started looking through th- at things through the eyes of parent. Mm-hmm. And and how can I help others look at things from that perspective. And and I think that comes from a face-to-face interaction, not that uh, an abstract, oh, I read a paper on parenting and, you know, now I'm a, a, a genius. No, it comes from like, if we get in a room and, um, you know, if, 30- if you're in a room with somebody every month mm-hmm. and you hear about what they're passionate about every month and you get to know them as a human being with family members and passions and you get to like that person, it's hard all of a sudden those issues are are real you know you can't you can't sort of oh those are a bunch of crazy bike people right you know they're just they're just risking their lives out there doing something nutty well when it's scott and when it's mehmed and when it's taylor and Mm -hmm. it's it's different Mm -hmm. so i totally agree with you the other thing about new urbanists or progressive urbanists, people that care about some of these things joining a neighborhood council is, if you can get something off the ground, a project that you're passionate about, even if it's something small, it snowballs because good work attracts more people that are passionate about the things that Mm -hmm. you're passionate about. And that's how cultures change. And that's how coalitions form. Absolutely. So, um, so, uh, Nick, in a nutshell, uh, the de- uh, Empower LA is uh, also the Department of Neighborhood Empowerment. So the Department of Neighborhood Empowerment is the official name, and Empower LA is the um, branded name. And uh, the neighborhood councils um, are, uh, there's 99 of them, there's 1,800 board seats. And I, I think it, it would be a tremendous goal for us to either uh, run as a candidate or think about who in your circle of influence would make a great candidate because if if it's not for you, it might be for someone, um, you know, 
the, one of your friends, a member of your family, uh, your wife. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Nick, I just got to tell you that if you start volunteering your wife for stuff, you're going <laughs> to. <laughs> That's one thing that new dads learn quickly. Stop volunteering <laughs> the wife. Well, <laughs> but keep in mind, though, that. Um, you know, Scott mentioned uh, homelessness, uh, transportation. You know, there's these as our as our lives change, the the things that we would push our neighborhood council to get involved in will start to change. And so now that I've got a, a four year old and, and uh, seven in two weeks, so a four year old and a seven year old, yeah, youth programming, public parks. I'm an expert on public parks yeah. and restrooms, <laughs> and um, and so the issues are are different for me now. And, for example, my sensitivity to, um, well, what do families do at these events? Like in a neighborhood council board meeting, right? Um, well, what am I going to The timing. You know, my life is governed now by naps, bedtimes. <laughs> you know, yep. this is going to cost me two days to recover if I, if, if I mess up this evening. So I'm, I'm hypersensitive and a lot more empathetic because when we talk about, oh, these people just don't care. They don't, they don't participate. No. We're not mm-hmm. uh, providing an opportunity that allows them to participate because, uh, you know, kids, family, dinner time, and the list goes on. So how do we meet people where they are if we have no sensitivity to who they are and where they are? And so, um, you know, oh, they, they don't care about these big issues that we care about. So no one showed up for my project. And, uh, it's, and, and I think that that's an opportunity. If, 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 if we bring enough people together, we can certainly collaborate and come up with a process that um, will generate outcomes that are good for everybody. So uh, that's the neighborhood council system. And, uh, and I know lots of neighborhood councils have, op- uh, lots of cities have opportunities for civic engagement. But the, th- the thing is that ours is in the city charter, which is kind of a cool thing. And it's a shame that we don't uh, take advantage of that or give it the respect it's due because the rest of the world does. Um, we had the prime minister, um, the prime minister of Japan, uh, after he was done, became the mayor of uh of a city and he came here and he actually just borrowed. I mean, that's the absolute essence of flattery. He just came and borrowed the neighborhood council system and then took three people from the neighborhood council system and had them go to, uh, um, I don't remember the name of the city, and and spend some time there to help him set it up. Mm -hmm. The White House took some of our neighborhood council board members to Memphis. Mm -hmm. The White House and um, took them to Memphis. How are they hearing about us, That's the point. LA is so busy. We had five major league or professional sporting events on the same day a couple of weeks ago. We're overwhelmed with noise. That's right. And sometimes, if I think we that's just, part of the reason why people haven't heard of the neighborhood council right. system. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's a it's a city of with that of that attracts people with a lot of personal goals <laughs> right. too, right? From all over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are consumed with those goals. Sure. And so, um, but yeah, I do think you're right that we have something very special here. And, and so on that note, you know, people with very, I mean, this is the land that attracts people with goals. Awesome. Goal-oriented people. Personal goals. This is an opportunity for personal goals to partner with a neighborhood council and manifest themselves. So if you come to town and, and uh, to, to perform... You know, how about the neighborhood councils that that partner with the local theaters? Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, um, right now, the Bronx Tale is uh, playing. Um, yeah, that was originally a workshop piece at Theater West on Coanga. 
And it was a workshop, and they would come in and they would do uh, a one-minute and then a ten-minute, and then they would cut it down, and then it turned into a one-person show, and then Robert De Niro saw it, and it went to New York and became a movie, and now it's a musical. And the point there is that's a local, locally generated, in um, the longest continually performing theater, Theater West, in uh, in Los Angeles. And neighbor councils are partnering with local theaters, mm-hmm. um, independent Shakespeare in Griffith Park. There's five neighborhood councils that partner with them. Yeah. And each neighborhood council gets their own weekend, and they bring their stakeholders. They get some time on stage, and they use it as an outreach opportunity and, a, and an opportunity to create some community and celebrate, mm-hmm. you know, in a beautiful facility, a beautiful, uh, you know, uh, park. Um, and... Um, and there's youth programming that the neighborhood councils participate in directing and the, and the performers come and engage the kids. And so these opportunities to uh, take an individual's goal that they came for, their vision, and to, to partner with them and give them a home or, a ho- or, or, a, or an opportunity to, to develop a project I think is incredible. It's not all, you know, weighing in on policy, which right there, you know, that sounds almost ominous. No, there's a lot of opportunities to do things that are really, truly engaging and fun. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Mid-City West did, uh, my, my very close friend, Josh Paget, who is one of the strong leaders on our council, uh, introduced the idea yeah, of, of, of Parking Day mm-hmm. in Mid-City West. So Parking Day is another international uh, movement event, happens every September. Um, the idea is you take a parking spot and you turn it into a pop-up park um, mm-hmm. for a day. Um, and so that's exactly what we did. And uh, the second year we did four pop-up parks, the whole festival of pocket, pocket parks. And um, so it was a wonderful way of engaging people in a creative way in ha- uh, having an experiment around public space, but also... You're talking about par- partnerships, partnering with local businesses. How do you partner with local businesses who have their own personal goals, mm-hmm. right? Um, and 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 create something that's mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, out of that, we had business owners that became board members after participating in Parking Day. Um, uh, so so these things can have all kinds of interesting results. Mm-hmm. But that's an example of something that, you know, when Josh first brought it up, uh, some people were like, "Eh, is that something that neighborhood councils (laughs) do? Uh, Take over a parking spot? Sure. Why not? Yeah. It's awesome. So, so Nick, I look forward to working with you. Uh, Yeah. uh, Nick Land Neighborhood Council. (laughs) And um, so um, I want to see if we could uh, finish up chatting with uh, Luke, if we could. names um, but I, I do think that um, that the fact that we're operating in a space where there's a lot of emotion is a great thing mm. it does of course mean that there's a lot of emotion and that comes with some opportunities to uh, look for common ground and it 
also means that some folks sometimes get hot, um, myself included. But I think that's part of the activist's growth process to learn how to manage the tools, including there's a time to stand up and you know make some noise, and there's a time to sit down and listen. You know, but there's lots of opportunities to start looking for many tools so that you have lots of uh, skills uh, that you can pull out in different scenarios to use for. I've been at the Metro, man, when it was just the Metro board, when it was just full and there were people uh, screaming and yelling. And um, you think that's changed? What's that? <laughs> you think that's changed? <laughs> well, not since yesterday. <laughs> and. Um, and then I've been there, and, and it felt like we were going to start singing Kumbaya, you know what I mean? And I don't know which is more or less effective. I just think that there are, there's a time for everything. And uh, it's important that we have, uh, in a group of people, that we have um, people with different skills that can... There's a time when we need to negotiate the peace treaty. Yeah. You better have someone that can, can handle that. Um, you can't always be pushing you know, when it's time to start working together. And, uh, and you mentioned funding, you know, it's the, you know, we can scream, show me the money all day long, but if we don't know how to help people understand, well, what is it you'd like us to spend this money on, especially when it's a huge amount of money, like the Metro manages, um, that Safe Routes to School project needs to be ready to go with community support or it's not going to get funded and something else will. It's nothing personal. You can get upset about it. You can scream and yell and call me names, but somebody else was ready and you weren't. But um, if we could go back to um, some... You you mentioned the neighbor council that sometimes you were... um, uh, Your neighbor council uh, got behind some projects and it was gratifying for you, perhaps not the projects that you would have brought to the table, but projects you hadn't thought of or heard of and then someone else brought them. Can you speak more to some of the success stories and what that felt like from your perspective? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. I, uh, you know, when I was president, there were a number of new members of our board and a couple of them who were sort of active in uh, more sort of like the the planning housing space. Um, They organized a drive for some, for, for, for materials, for supplies, for people who are experiencing homelessness, and through that we had they had this phenomenal um, this phenomenal response from the community. Uh, but there was a principal from a local school that said, you know, um, we're having an issue where the young women in our school, many of whom are uh, come from lower income households, and they don't have just like basic feminine hygiene kits. Um, and this is something you would, that these young women and no one on our board, frankly, had even given a second thought to because how would we know that, right? How would we know that this was an issue? And it wasn't that, that wasn't the kind of thing that anyone had run on to join the board or was making their issue. But they heard this from this principal and they said, we're organizing a drive for feminine hygiene kits. And it was phenomenal. I, I cannot, I mean, I, I picture in my mind how many of these you know how the kind of response they got. How many, how much, how many goods were provided by members of the community were donated. They got donations from businesses, hundreds of members of the community, and the response from the school to seeing this was just you know they couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just this incredible outpouring of support from the community, and that was the kind of thing that no one goes into the board thinking this is what I'm going to do, right? They don't think I'm going to provide feminine hygiene kits for the school for the kids at the school. 
but they heard that there was an issue, they responded, and this is the result. And the school now was going to be able to provide this for their students who need the need these kits for years to come because there was such an outpouring of support from the community for it. And that's the kind of thing that I think neighborhood councils have a really unique space that they can provide because we're so at the grassroots level within the community that our ears don't need to go to the ground, our ears are already at the ground. We don't need, we just need to listen, we just need to be open and willing to hear from people who maybe we don't necessarily agree with all the time, or people who are coming from a space that we're not accustomed to or familiar with, who have a need, who have an issue, the neighborhood council, because of the fact that we're elected officials, because we have a, a, a megaphone, are able to organize our community in specific ways that can be quite successful. Excellent. You know, uh, you did mention um, that participating in a neighborhood council requires uh, a sensitivity to the process. And I, I, re I recall my days um, when, I think this was back when the city was proposing a new bike plan and we were unhappy with the direction it was going. And the thing was, our meetings were pretty easy because we had no money to fight over. <laughs> we had no agendas. Um, and Alex Thompson from Microwave, they had a few behaviors at the Microwave, like they would stack names so that we didn't all have to raise our hands and, you know, crowd. But, you know, when you get 20 folks over, you know, and it was always in a, in a fun restaurant and a fun ride. So, first of all, activism, I thought, should always be fun and we should yes. always have food. And yes. a nice bike ride makes it even better. But... Um, you know, how do you, how does the hoi polloi organize itself? And the, and the, the fun thing there was we were very incisive because we, we got, there was, there was no minutes to debate or approve. There was no uh, agenda to, um, you know, we had a talking no stick, right? There's no brown act. There was no ethics. It was just a, we had the talking stick and we'd stack names. And so, you know, all 20 names are up there and we just take turns talking. And if you weren't happy, you didn't have to ride home with us. You know what I mean? It's, and vice versa. If I wasn't feeling it, I could move on. And, um, and there was a lot of that, uh, um, you know, amorphous activism. Folks are in and out, and eventually there came this mo moment in L.A. bike history where I, I looked back and thought, I think we've become like a movement. You know, you can see that now when you look back how much has changed. Yeah. The Metro's changed its attitudes, its funding, its behavior, its policies, its engineering. A lot's changed there. L.A. DOT, the city of L.A. You know, life as we know it is changing dramatically, not just with bikes. You know, but you mentioned, um, you know, the crosswalks and the citations and so enforcement, education, land use, you know, c uh, code, how it's enforced, zoning. Um, but I come back to, sorry for meandering there, I come back to neighborhood councils in the process. Could you speak to two things? And the first one is, what's the benefit of learning about the, um, you know, the California State Open Meeting Law? And what's the benefit of learning about ethics laws for the city of L.A.? And you know, the Robert's Rules of Order, and what's the benefit of learning those things that the City Council and the Metro Board, that other agencies use? And the second thing is, what if I didn't have a lot of time for all of this, to, to, to get approved and to go through the training and participate in the board? Is there a place for me if I don't have that significant commitment to the administrative journey, but just wanted to jump on something specific? Those are great questions. I, you know, the, to the first one, as far as the benefit, uh, it's hard to say. <laughs> I have to say that in jest. I think it's actually, um, it's really important to understand what it is we, that, so it, it, you get to see on the other side. 
the real effect of policies that have been put in place over many years to ensure that government is responsive, that it's open, that it is it is not corrupt. Um, and in California especially, you, you know, I mentioned the Brown Act, um, there are various rules that are in place which are intended to ensure that the business of the government, which is the business of the people, is responsive to and open to the people. And frankly, you know, having spent now four years in that, I am in that, in that you know, sort of steeped in that. I am much less willing to sort of jump to conclusions about particular things that may be happening at the city council or at the board of supervisors or whatever here in California um, because I understand what all the stringent requirements that are that exist to stop all those things from happening. And I'm also much less uh, willing to sort of jump on a bandwagon to do another restriction or another thing because frankly, in some ways, I'm almost surprised that government is able to function with all the restrictions that exist as it is. But they do, and I think they do a pretty good job of it. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's really helpful to get to see that on the other side. Now, as a volunteer, you know, there's, it, it, it's, it can also be a little overwhelming. And to your second question, it's, it's also good to know that there's, you don't have to be on a board of a neighborhood council to be involved with a neighborhood council. Um, neighborhood councils have stakeholder committees. When I was at the Los Feliz Neighborhood Council, um, I pushed for and had created an ad hoc committee uh, that was specifically about one intersection, which your listeners may be familiar with at the Vista. It's at Hollywood, Sunset, Sunset Drive, Virgil Hillhurst. Basically looking like, what can we do at this intersection to make it better? And we came up with a whole set of recommendations. We did a whole process that's all spelled out over a 17-page document that the board approved some nine months after the committee was created, and it was done. But from there, went on to chairing the, and, or reconstituting and chairing the Transportation Committee of the Neighborhood Council. Only a few neighborhood councils actually have a Transportation Committee because it's not necessarily something that they see as an issue unto itself. They may have it as part of public safety like they do in Silver Lake, or they may have it as part of land use because they see sort of parking as the transportation issue and they tie that in with land use. Neighborhood councils all sort of constitute their stakeholder committees differently but that is where, if you can't be on a board because of all the time commitment and all the effort that's involved with that, the stakeholder committees are the next place where you can really get involved. Uh, and you don't have to do more than just show up to a few committee meetings. You can be on a committee if you can regularly commit to being there, but you can still be an active participant in the process and influence the process when you just go to meetings that are talking about the issues that you care about. So that, you know, that is, you know, an evening a month every third fourth month if it's just i want to just go and speak up on this thing which i know is coming up on the agenda and i want to make sure that my voice is heard and depending on the committee chair depending on their process there may be opportunities to do more in participating as just a stakeholder not a member of the committee than just sort of the one and a half or two minutes of public comment limitation that you would get at a board meeting as a member of the public where they've got to sort of run through a myriad uh, a myriad issues on their agenda at a committee, a stakeholder committee, you can often have a real back and forth dialogue or conversation with members of the committee, with members of the public, that frankly, in my mind, that's where the real work gets done. And whatever that committee then recommends to the board, nine times out of ten, the board is going to agree to, unless it's something that's super controversial, in which case, you know, if you really care about it, then you got to organize a lot more than just showing up to say a few words. Right. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that intersection. There's another one in um, in the valley. It's 
it's three, literally three streets mm. making a star intersection. Fun. And um, the thing is that it's not, it's not that we don't have the genius capability of engineering for these intersections. It's just that we're so entrenched with the status quo that to move an intersection to the front of the line, you know, with folks that are doing their best to do their job and get home to their families and enjoy their lives, uh, it does require a lot of uh, engaging the community. And I think that sometimes we don't have to be traffic engineers. We don't have to be um, land use experts. We don't have to be skilled at everything to simply engage the, communi uh, the community and, and sort of get a conversation going so that a, a, a policymaker can say, I think I've got some critical mass of, uh, of participation here, of opinions, of concern on the outcome. Perhaps we could take a look at this intersection. I think about, in this particular neighborhood, some of the streets that have gotten attention, it's, it's always because folks have said, let's pay attention. Yep. And it's a big city with a lot of streets, and, um, and, and it's a big county. You mentioned 88 cities, and that's only 60% of the county. 40% of the county is unincorporated. And L.A. obviously is a big one in there. And then there's some significant ones, Long Beach, Santa Monica. You know, there's some uh, large cities, uh, Glendale, Burbank. But out of 88 cities, the average neighborhood council is bigger right. than the majority of the of cities, cities. Yep. in L.A. County. And I think that's sometimes where we forget that the power of the community is significant. Yeah. And it starts with an intersection. It starts with a, a curb cut. It starts with a point where a human and a bit of the community turns into two people and an opinion and a conversation. And next thing you know, we're actually providing the, the catalyst for some significant change. And I know that, um, you know, sometimes to call ourselves social justice change agents. I don't know what we call uh, the folks that are making things happen. But at the end of the day, I think everybody's committed to improving the quality of life for their families, for themselves, you know, for their neighbors. I mean, that's the spirit of um, community emergency uh, response training is, you know, make sure you're set. Is your family accounted for and happy and safe? And how your neighbor's doing? And if we applied that not just in, in the middle of a crisis, but in an everyday fashion, I think that we'd be well on our way to sort of lifting up the city, if you will. Um, and so uh, on that note, let's take a look and see when uh, Los Feliz elections are coming up. Um, they're going to be in, on April 4th in 2019, which there means in January, folks in your neighborhood um, can... Uh, can pick up the uh, baton from Luke and and uh, carry on the legacy. Oh, there's hardly people who have picked up that baton. <laughs> so, but the other thing is, um, uh, with neighbor councils, it's not just folks that live in the neighborhood. It's live. It's folks that work in the neighborhood. It's folks that uh, own properties or businesses. Um, you know, real estate agents that are active in your community would qualify for Los Feliz. And then, and the, the fourth category is uh, folks that are um, involved in a particular uh, project. Um, uh, or organizations, so if they go to church, have kids in right. school here. And so on that note, it's not just where you sleep at night, in, like in traditional elections, but also you qualify where you feel like your energy should be yeah, spent. Yeah, and every neighborhood council, as you know, their bylaws define who's, you know, what seats are open, what how someone can 
qualify to run for a particular seat and that could be very limited or restricted in this or that fashion whereas who can vote generally is a lot more sort of right. open. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to hit on one thing that you were saying earlier and then we'll, we can wrap it. You know, you were talking about, um, you know, sort of the, the, the expertise of different fee people and sort of, you know, what the community, if you don't have to be an expert on this or that thing. I, I would just sort of say, like, I, I was in a training the other day. It was an Americans with Disabilities Act training, and it was this guy was showing slides of, like, you know, this is what's wrong with this picture. Right? And there's like an umbrella draped over the sidewalk. Well, obviously, that's what's wrong with the picture. But then I looked at it and thought, what's wrong with the picture is the, is the sidewalk's too narrow. Because the sidewalk, if it were wider, that umbrella wouldn't be a problem because you'd still have your clearance. But of course, his issue and the way he was looking at it was, well, it's the umbrella because the street width is assumed to be okay and the sidewalk width is assumed to be okay. And I think one of the things that we assume when we, when we talk with experts, you know, traffic engineers, whoever they may be on whatever issue, is that they know they have the tools because, you know, because they're the ones who've been doing this for so many years. Don't assume that. Which is not to say don't trust them, right? But is to say that they're responding to a very set, prescribed set of, you know, rules or approaches that they've been trained to take. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's pretty phenomenal about neighborhood councils, in particular, but just getting involved as an activist, is being able to help people see things differently. Being able to, I, I, I in my in my old office, I had a, an atlas of the world. It was an upside down atlas that was basically intended to like. We're so used to seeing things the exact same way all the time. It was like flipping on its head. It was like, wait, oh my gosh, Australia's at the top and like Canada's at the bottom. Like there are all these things that just, but seeing it differently, it was, to me, that's one of the most important things that we can do in a neighborhood council is really challenge our elected leaders, challenge our city officials, challenge the, 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 the tech, the, the, the issue experts, you know, in whatever capacity. To, to see things from a different perspective, going back to your point about getting the cops out on the bikes, that's exactly right. That is exactly what we're able to do in a neighborhood council is say, look, come to us. Come like come here and see what we're doing, see what we're talking about, and, and work with us. Work with us in some capacity because we're the official elected people representing this neighborhood. You need to listen to us, and we may not be able to affect every change in the, ma in the, in the manner or fashion that we envision it to be changed, but we can at least press the issue. We can at least bring a new voice, set of voices to the table, and to the degree that people actually really stick with it and, and stay engaged in it, I think we, we start to see some real opportunities for, for change that we would not necessarily even fathom going into it. Excellent. So um, going back to something you said at the very beginning, you mentioned patience and stamina. <laughs> and I don't think those... Uh, to powers, and, and those are pretty significant, um, you know, superpowers, you know, patience and, uh, and stamina. I don't think those necessarily flow from outrage, discontent, um, you know, and, and so, so the, and, and the point is, it's one thing to have an activating incident that gets you all fired up and I'm going to cross the street and I'm going to engage and I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to knock these obstacles down. I'm just filled with adrenaline yes. on this particular topic. But if patience and stamina are the key to success as an activist and, and as a neighborhood council board member and as a policymaker, the thing is that those kind of, those kind of speak to the fact that um, we need to be healthy. Uh -huh. And so 
perhaps uh, in parting, you could share your personal uh, secrets for for health, for self care, for keeping the fire burning without burning out. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm still figuring that one out myself. <laughs> you know, I, I, my my mom shared with me something when I was in the midst of one of these really really contentious things at a neighborhood council that was just. It was wearing me down. I mean, I would I would call her almost daily and just be like, "Oh my God, I cannot believe this day it has just been." And it was really, really just eating away at my spirit. And you know, and that's the stuff that I don't want people to be discouraged. That happens. It happens. It's what happens when you are working with a diverse group of people from your community, and there's a contentious issue. There's going to be challenges. And what she said to me, and I will never forget, and I have applied repeatedly since then is do what you love without attachment to the result. Do what you love without attachment to the result. And what that means, and the way I've applied that, is I'm not going to give up on caring about the things I care about. And it doesn't mean that I give up on caring about those things becoming reality, but it does mean that I accept that I can only control what I can only control. And particularly as when I was president of the Neighborhood Council, um, much of what I was doing I would say 99% of what I was doing was just keeping the thing going, right? Like on occasion, on a very rare occasion, I would speak up about my perspective on something and I would hand off the gavel because I wasn't allowed to speak with an opinion on something as, as chair. But almost in the entire rest of the time, I was only ever just facilitating. Um, and in many cases on things where I very strongly had an opinion, but I felt like it was too important to just, to, to, it was more important for me in my capacity to ensure that our process was followed, to ensure that we continued to function, that people who had differing opinions on something, on other, either, you know, various parts of the board, could still come back together on the next issue and the next issue on the agenda, because all of these things were issues that we needed to grapple with as a community, as a neighboring council. Um, and so I have learned to really just continue to apply that. I have to remind myself, all the time, because as an activist, I don't want to. I don't want to lose sight of something getting done that I really care about. But I also have to recognize that getting part of the way there is just as important because you start to get the foot in the door, and that starts to affect real change. But it may not be happening at a pace that I want because I want to see it happen tomorrow. But it may happen a week or two weeks or three weeks from now. And that is more than would have happened if I had not engaged in the fight in the first place. So doing what you love without attachment to the result, because I, I believe that it becomes very easy for us when we care about things to, to not see what we're loving and to only see what we're trying to accomplish, right? And the reason we seek out that thing that we want to accomplish is because it means so much to us in the first place. So when you focus back on why does this mean something to me, you're able to sort of break out of that singular accomplishment you need to you need to see happen, and instead be open to the range of possibilities that also get that also move the ball forward on that issue. Excellent. So uh, perhaps uh, we're going to wrap it here, but uh, perhaps you will uh, join us again in the future on our mentors panel, <laughs> where we uh, bring some of the. Uh, um, folks with some background in the different arenas together and uh, and sort of um, take a look at how we can uh, raise up the next generation of activists 
the next generation of neighborhood council leaders, and of course the next generation of policymakers. Um, so look forward to chatting with you again in the future. This has been Stephen Box here with uh, Luke Clip, and uh, I want to say thank you very much. Uh, I find it to be a really an inspirational experience to chat with you. And Likewise. I'm sure, I'm sure other folks do too. So thanks very much. Thank you, Stephen. So that was, uh, that was Luke Clip. Uh, I'm Stephen Box. We got Nick uh, there keeping us under control. Hey and uh, Scott, um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you before the show and oh, here in the show. It's great fun. And, you know, I, uh, I think uh, maybe we should just end with a call to action. You know, I mean, I think we're living in – it's an interesting time politically, right, from – you know, certainly a lot going on on the national level. And um, we're actually in a time right now because of a lot of the controversy uh, on the national level where people want to be engaged, right? And we just had a real amazing test case in, in the midterm elections, right? Yeah. Nobody ever used to, you know, turn out for midterm elections was terrible. Nobody paid attention to it. All of a sudden, youth tur youth turnout is up. Um, turnout of all these underrepresented groups is up, and you're seeing it in the faces of the people that are joining this next Congress, right? Mm -hmm. Well, let's take a lesson from that and get even involved even more locally, because where you can really see some some action is at the local level. So, I know a lot of folks criticize those that don't participate um, for lacking um, motivation or for being jaded or apathetic. But I do think that we have a responsibility to create uh, an opportunity for people to have a meaningful participation and to allow them to do something with a significant return on their investment. And so that's my commitment, um, that if you give me a shout at 323-864-7586, I really will uh, help you find uh, uh, a place somewhere, somehow, where you can have a meaningful uh, participation um, with folks from your community in whatever uh, capacity is right for you, whether it's you know um, with a project or supporting someone else's project or on a committee or running for a neighborhood council board seat or just joining in and enjoying the sense of commu uh, community, commu uh, you know, esprit de corps, camaraderie that comes from meeting people face to face and uh, and finding your place in that mix so that your superpower can really be put to use in a meaningful way. So that's my promise. Uh, as far as a call to action, I just want you to know um, I would love for you to reach out and uh, and give me a shout, and um, you know, perhaps your paths will cross with Scott or with Luke, or with Nick, um, but uh, one way or the other, I look forward to seeing you all on the streets. Great. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Scott. Thank Great you. Show. Ride safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.